Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Underrated Movie Podcast. I am your ghost host, Derek McDuff, doing a bad impersonation of Vincent Price. And joining me is a special spoopy guest, Matt from the Matt and Mark Movie Show. Oh, my God. Thank you. Wow, what an open. Thank you, Vincent, uh, for having me. And I have to say, if there's ever a time to hang out with Vincent Price, it's Halloween, right? Right. I I figure everyone always, they do like a Dracula voice or something like, ooh, it's a Halloween episode, or they do something like that. I was like, you know, I'm going to go a little bit off base. I'm going to do something a little different. And I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad you liked it. But yeah, uh, for anyone out there who is not familiar with the show, uh, this is a podcast where we discuss underrated underappreciated and under the radar films and today is our halloween special so i asked someone very spooky to be here uh and that is my good buddy matt he's got a great podcast and he brought a great movie a great spooky kind of under the radar maybe kind of cult classic halloween movie burnt offerings uh from 1976 directed by Dan Curtis, co- who also co-wrote the film with uh, William F. Nolan, and it stars Karen Black, as well as Hollywood legends Oliver Reed and Betty Davis. But yeah, Matt, thank you, thank you so much for being on. Before we get into the episode, what are you, what are you doing? I know you're doing a lot of spooky stuff, or have done a lot of spooky stuff over on the Matt and Mark movie show. Oh yeah, we uh, spoop. We call it our spoopy season. I love that all the pods have a different uh, variation of what they call their October. <laughs> We do spoopy season. We've done it the uh, past three years. Every episode is a spoopy episode. We change our theme song. We only review horror movies. Um, This year, we have a guest co-host in residence, which is kind of a cool new thing. Our buddy Tommy Nuggets came over. Um, He's just a big horror head who we love hanging out, talking horror movies with. And we're covering a mix of old and new. So like the new Saw movie we're covering. Our big Halloween special this year is going to be Five Nights at Freddy's. But we're also going retro too. You know, you don't get many actual Friday the 13th. So we did a Friday the 13th movie on our pod. In addition to Halloween Horror Nights, all kinds of fun, spoopy stuff going on on the show. It's like nonstop Halloween, which is uh, which is awesome. It's my favorite yeah. time of year. Yeah, you guys are always a little bit spoopy, and then you just go full on in October, which I really yeah. appreciate. We don't even wait sometimes. Like last year, we started in <laughs> September, and it was like, I think the audience was a little like, really? So this year, we played it safe, and we waited till October. So there you go. Yeah, well, it worked out. And then, yeah, we've had more spooky episodes this year on Underrated just because of the way it worked out. There's three episodes releasing this year and lined up. So I was like, all right, let's just put this all the spooky episodes around here. I'll get some. I knew I knew a couple spooky podcasters, so it all worked out. But like you say, the best man. These these are like the best podcast. You're going to look back at the end of the year and you're going to be like, what were the most fun episodes I had? The spooky ones. Always. (laughs) I know. It's always a blast. And you mentioned that you guys do a lot of retro stuff, and I always love listening to those episodes, even if I haven't seen or heard of the movie. And it's a lot of times it's kind of these these movies that I haven't heard of that are maybe like horror hounds might know. But I, I have yes. not heard of this one. Uh, this is a retro movie. This is older than I think. The only movies that we've covered on this show that were older than this were when we did our series on old films and then one silent film that we did too. <laughs> so I'm always... I always feel like this show is kind of biased towards the more recent stuff because underrated stuff from the past is just forgotten. So I'm, I was really excited when you when you pitched this one. So why don't you tell the good people about Burnt Offerings? 
Well, boils and ghouls. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, the reason that I picked Burnt Offerings was because I've been on Derek's show many times. And I feel like I've always brought, I've only done horror movies, which is awesome and is my favorite. But I feel like I've brought you movies previously that were underrated, but they were movies that were pretty well known. And you even say it at the top of your pod, right? Under the radar. I was like, I want to bring Derek something under the radar. When it comes to Halloween time, even casual horror movie viewers, even if you're not watching this stuff throughout the year, everybody kind of has their hit list. They're either going to go for the brand new honkin' shiny release, or they're going to go for the classics, right? They're going to go for your Friday the 13th, your Nightmare on Elm Streets, okay? I wanted to bring something that no one <laughs> has heard of, and it's not in any regular rotation. It's gotten some kind of renaissance viewings from the more elite movie critic crowd, and I thought it was perfect for Halloween because it's one of these movies that I think we can read it a couple different ways, and all of those readings are very, very, very valid. But the thing I wanted to bring here was an under-the-radar movie. It's Halloween time. It's got to not just feel like a movie. You've got to be scared. Mm. I think the best Halloween movies don't feel like movies. They feel like when you're a kid and you stumble across a scary movie on TV, maybe you're up a little later than you should have been. It feels like a nightmare you can't wake up from. And that's what Burnt Offerings is to me. I'm not going to sit here and pretend it's the best movie of all time. It's just a very, very good, solidly made movie that gets under your skin. And if you let it, it will haunt you. And I think that's perfect for Halloween. So that's why yeah. I brought it here. And I'm, ha- I'm psyched yeah. to talk to you about it. No, I, I'm very psyched. I, like I said, this is one that was not even on my radar. And you, you mentioned the under the radar thing. I always like to check on Letterboxd when I do, a, when I'm looking at underrated movies. It's like, okay, what's the rating? And then also like how many people that I follow have watched this movie? And I think like one person, like there was, and it was like a movie critic who like I follow had seen this movie and like no none of the other critics none of my friends none of my horror friends had click checked this movie off on their letterbox so i was like okay then it's not just me being ignorant about horror movies i think that this one is truly a kind of under the radar film and you know you mentioned that it might not like be the best movie or anything but it's got this vibe and before we were recording we were talking about how um you had been to uh, uh, Universal's uh, Halloween Horror Nights, and then also Not Scary Farm, which, you know, since I'm blessed to live in Southern California, I get to do that. I get to go to those whenever I'd like, whenever it's spooky season. And, I, you know, I know you're going to talk about that on your show. People should check that episode out. But I think that this episode really feels like if you have, like, if you have, like, the Halloween, like, the, the Universal is, like, the Exorcist or something, or, like, these big budget movies, this feels like the Not Scary Farm where it's got this more, like, homegrown, rustic, like, just janky a little bit, like, it's held together with scotch tape, but that makes it almost a little bit creepier and spookier, and I really dig that. The lack of polish, the lack of polish, Mm. and the fact that it makes it feel less like a movie, and more like some haunted artifact you were not meant to find. And that's what I really like. Like, I like showing people, I watch horror year-round, I'm a big horror head. Most of the people I follow and hang out with are horror heads. And for me on Halloween, I find that when people want movie recommendations for me or they want to watch a movie with me around Halloween time, it's always kind of things that you instantly uh, know. It's the things that everybody always kind of pulls down from the shelf. I love movies like this because 
you have no, I think, you know, Exorcist, something like this, you have expectations, it's in the zeitgeist, you sort of know what to expect. A movie like Burnt Offerings, you are airdropped into someone's nightmare. You have no idea where this movie is taking you. And so the fear gets real. That's what I love. And it just feels like this odd document that we're looking at. I was reminded, I, I always like to be super fresh before I come on your show. And I was like, all right, I'm going to, I've seen the movie before, but I was like, I'm going to rewatch it the night before. And even rewatching it last night on my own, I encourage you, if you're, if you're listening to this show right now and you're going to watch Burnt Offerings, watch it by yourself in the dark, late. Do it, do it, do it. You can do it. Be brave because it will pay off because at first you'll be like, this isn't a big deal. Who cares? And it's slowly going to unnerve you really bad. And I love that. I love that. Yeah. It feels like honestly a template for a lot of movies that would come after, like a lot of like modern horror, like the prestige horror feels very rooted in this. And, and watching this movie, I felt like I was looking at the Rosetta Stone, not just for modern horror, but like a lot of stuff that would come out in the late 70s and then 80s. I was like, uh, like when it starts and they're like driving in the car, I'm like, oh, I love a good horror movie when they start driving in the car. It reminded me of The Shining. And then I was like, oh, Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick owe this movie royalties, I feel like. It was just the way, the the whole vibes of, and it's obviously, you know, like this is the not scary farm version of the Universal's Shining. But it, it's so just like, every beat of it is just like okay it might not be the same thing that's happening but like at the end you know spoilers for the shining when you see like jack in the picture you're like okay cool in the end it's like she's the old lady in the attic it's like all these little beats and like things like i'm like i was looking up i was like okay like this was this really the first i'm like yeah it came out before poltergeist before um like i mentioned the shining before amity amity that's a hard word to say amityville horror like before any of these <laughs> And I was like, wow, this movie, it just feels like the, the first, like the, the, the creature that came out of the sludge between the fish and like reptiles or whatever. That's what this thing was, you know? Yes. Yeah. The prototype, the, the missing link almost, right? Our link <laughs> yeah. to the past in a weird kind of a perverse cinematic way. I like <laughs> what you said too, you were right. This, uh, it really struck me in my viewing last night because you were talking about prestige horror. I, hear, I hate the term elevated horror. But, you know, so many people are now making their bread and butter on that. I don't have to go into a diatribe about why I don't like it. I'll just say I don't like it. (laughs) But this feels like sort of the genesis, the Prometheus almost of A24 movies. It's like, Mm -hmm. here's this very simple setting that we can exploit real existential fear out of. And it's done with a prestige cast. Like if this movie was made today, A24 would scoop this up. And like you said, you've got a killer cast. You've got Oliver Reed from Three Musketeers and Gladiator. You've got fucking Betty Davis. Betty Davis. Who late in this career, by the way, is in another great horror movie you've never seen called Watcher in the Woods. A dark Disney movie that everybody should check out. She made four years later. Oh, I heard about this. It's great. You've also got Burgess Meredith, another fucking legend that shows up for two scenes. And then, of course, you've got horror icon Karen Black, who I got to just say, I know I'm a little biased, but anytime I see Karen Black, I know I'm in for a good time. She always plays, she has this intense eccentricity. Every single one of her characters, from like Five Easy Pieces and Easy Rider, on down to her more horror-friendly stuff like Trilogy of Terror and playing Mama Flyerfly in the uh, the House of a Thousand Corpses, Rob Zombie's Firefly family, the, the first episode of that. But it's like, 
she brings something so unique to every movie she's in. Like, she's just one of those welcome horror presences. Like, if I see her, I'm like, ha we're all in for a good time here. So I definitely think it's got all these great sort of ingredients that we find today in our sort of prestige A24 horror, right? These sort of like no frills. It's not high concept at all. It's playing with the world around you as you know it. And then it's giving you this deep wave of existential fear. I think it's all there. And as you said, this precedes Shining, precedes Poltergeist, precedes Amityville. So yeah, a lot of people owe this movie like a lot. And it's not even like, like those are big movies that we named that have distinct visual identities that went on to carve out tropes for people to follow later. This is doing it before anybody. So it's crazy that it's directed by Dan Curtis, a guy who did TV and never did another theatrical movie. He's known as the Dark Shadows guy. And here, it's that kind of creepy, sort of like flat removed TV photography that makes this movie even more disturbing. It's nothing flashy. There's nothing, there's no safe ground for you as a viewer. You can't be like, oh, look at this fancy camera move. Look at this amazing special effect. There's nothing that breaks the immersion or the illusion for you. It's just like, here is this nightmare presented as generically as possible and it will get under your skin. And it's fucking great. It's great. No, uh, yeah, I, no, I can't say enough about it. I, I completely agree with all that. You know, it's interesting. Watching this at first, I was like, I really like Reed's and Davis's performances. Black wasn't doing it for me. But the more I've been thinking about it, it's really interesting because she it feels almost like an old timey, like very like stage, like like 1930s film performance. You know, it's almost just like I'm ready for my close up, you know, like Sunset Boulevard. And that works so well for this character who is like slipping back into the past. Like she is the house who is also this old lady. And I mean, it's one of those things that like, it's like, you, you, it doesn't make any sense like logically, but it makes sense emotionally. And she yes. is just so good. Like she's wearing like the old flowy robes and stuff like that. I, I, I was like, I, like the more you're talking, I was like, man, I think I, I think I underappreciated her. Cause yeah, like it's, it's a different vibe that she's doing. And it works well with the, like, you know, the Dan Curtis, you know, you mentioned that he's mostly a TV guy. This does not have any crazy sweeping cinematography. Like, it doesn't have the the crazy, like, Tobe Hooper or, like, Kubrickian kind of stuff. It's just very flat. It's very, like, washed out. It's, and I don't know if it, like, it was, like, because it's, like, from a TV, like, a DVD transfer that was not good. Or, but I, <laughs> it's, it's something that I could see, like, people being mad at at the time. But I was like, I kind of appreciated just the the almost made-for-TV aesthetics because nothing looks like that today. In this post-David Fincher world where everyone is trying to crib off of his like sleek, perfect style with no like light coming in and stuff like that and everything, especially like A24 movies, I feel like have to look very crisp and dark and like something like Nope, which looks incredible. The way they shoot day for night looks so good. And this is the exact opposite of that spectrum. And it was not, it was kind of like, wow, they just don't make movies like this anymore. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned Curtis. He's, he's uh, how he had done Dark Shadows. I had seen, I'm a little more familiar with him from uh, him doing The Night Stalker, which is, if anybody's not familiar, uh, it's also called Kojak the Night Stalker. And it's, a, it's the dad from the Christmas story who's just a regular detective who's like, well, there's a vampire out here. I guess I gotta go stop him. It's so good. He's and they spun it off into a whole show where he just keeps running into werewolves. He's also the dad from Billy Madison. 
Oh shit! Yes, he is. Oh man! Like that guy is fucking amazing, and is also kind of that sort of acting, that sort of very like over the top mm. chamber piece acting, is also in that Karen Black school of acting. Yeah, man. I, I I had to also cut it really quick because you're totally right. Like the the TV look, right? It does look like a TV mini, like movie of the week or something. But doesn't that as a horror movie, like does the lack of polish? make it seem a little more real to you because like, it does to me it has like that effect where it's like i'm not watching a movie anymore like i'm just kind of experiencing these events with the people because it is so no frills you know i think it's to the movie's benefit yeah absolutely and i think that's part of the reason why obviously this isn't found footage but why found footage horror films have hit so well you know last week uh i talked about a found footage horror movie and more than any other genre, I think found footage has really taken its grasp because it removes the artifice completely. And this, I think, is, once again, that kind of first step towards that. You're not, it's not pretending like, oh, this is just some footage that these people recorded. But it feels like it could have been almost. Yeah, totally. It feels uh, like it, it really truly does feel like you're almost in a voyeuristic way spying on this family as their lives fall apart and the family unit disintegrates before your eyes. We haven't even told people what this movie is about. Like, yeah. putting all this crazy existential stuff behind it, it, it couldn't be more simple. Here's the basic plot. This is all you need to know about Burnt Offerings. It's about a haunted house. That's it! That's what's crazy <laughs> about it. It's literally, it's not like a, oh no, ghosts and goblins and vampires and the, the eyes and the painting following you. No. It's literally about a house that feeds on human suffering. It's about a house that just wants to consume souls and does everything it can in the most sort of in the most vague way possible, picks your life apart to the point where you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is the is, is this the human? Is this the person making a bad decision, being a bad person, ruining their life? Or is this sort of the supernatural quality of the house doing these things you're like you're you're wondering that scene to scene now until the ending of the movie where it is very clear what's happening but there are so many little instances like that where it just plays with your expectations like it's a haunted house movie but not in the way you think yeah i i love that how vague it is you know like where and that's something i love about the shining too is that with some of these movies like poltergeist they're like oh it's an indian burial ground or whatever but like that's why Room 237, the documentary, is so interesting because it's like when a movie like this leaves things open, you're like, what's going on? What's happening? Is it like the characters or whatever? And, you know, the end is like, okay, like the house is doing it. It's not just he's not just like freaking out and trying to murder him. But even that, it's like, wait, what was that? Like, was there an old lady? Like, was it her the whole time? How could it have been her? Has, has she always been in this house? Is she some kind of reincarnation? Does she Benjamin Button age backwards? Like, what's up with the kids? The house, is is it alive? Is it her? Is it not her? Is it a separate thing? What's Burgess Meredith's deal? Like, what is... Like, I just love the weird ambiguity. You're not really sure what's happening. And the movie ends. You gotta just... You gotta think about it for a little while and be like, huh... Okay, so that's what this is. And that leads into like just people thinking and thinking about the film and theorizing rather than it's like a cut and dry like, oh, yeah, that's why I like Dr. Sleep is a well-made movie, but I don't like that it kind of robs the mystery of 
The Shining being like, it Ghost did it. Yeah, and that's that's exactly right. That's a great example. No disrespect to Mike Flanagan. I love Mike Flanagan, and I like Dr. Sleep a lot, but you hit it on the head. A movie made today, Dr. Sleep was made a couple years ago, a movie made today would go to painstaking effort to over-explain the mechanics of the house, how it's working, why you should be afraid, and all this stuff. Hence, removing the mystery, removing the very thing, the foundation of what makes it terrifying. In the 70s, they were like, we can't not be bothered to explain shit to you people we're all on quaaludes we gotta just make the movie karen black and betty davis hate each other i have to hurry up and shoot the scene <laughs> i don't have time to explain shit you want to add a, a scene about how the house does this no people are just gonna do whatever they want like the simplicity and the mystery make it scary the the unknown is a hundred times infinitely more scarier than the known is you know and that's what this movie also plays with too like just the idea where scene to scene, you're not sure. Like, exactly. Like, you start running through the questions. Like, after the movie, and I had seen the movie before, after my screening last night, I was like, I gotta take a shower and just <laughs> be thankful I'm in my apartment. Like, I am just grateful that it's not a real place that's anywhere fucking near me. I was just like, I was so happy to be in my life at that moment. You know what I mean? Like, because I really put myself in the position of the characters you've got this married couple who seem very happy on the, on the surface, but, but the man and the, and the husband and the wife want very different things. They have a son who's just like a young, wild, rambunctious kid who's in a total innocent. And they're bringing their great aunt along with them, who happens to also be Betty Davis, who <laughs> gets some business to do and has one of the most, I would say, spoiler, one of the most disturbing death scenes of any movie. Like, I, I don't know if you've looked at my letterbox, but... The one comment I had to make about this movie, I always make one comment about a movie when, I, when I'm watching. I'm reminded of how fucking crazy the 70s were. Like, before the invention of the PG-13 rating in the 80s, this is a PG movie. Now, seeing what you've seen, Derek, and seeing the mm. ending of this movie, would you have bet money that this was a PG movie? Parental guidance suggested, not parental guidance enforced. In the 70s, they were like, this is suitable to take my whole family to. Like, fucking PG movies. Like, honey, I shrunk the kids, man. This is a PG movie. I love the Wild West attitude of the 70s. It's like, the MPAA today is so stringent and so tough with what they'll allow. They'll, you know, literally make a filmmaker's life hell, having them recut things just to hit a rating, right? In the 70s, they were like, fuck it. Burn offerings, PG. Like, when I, saw that, I forgot it was PG, and I was like, this is insanity. And funny enough, another movie we called out earlier, Poltergeist, is also PG. Which, again, how the fuck is that movie a PG? <laughs> it did say that has you know people ripping people's faces off and so much blood and gore and and awesome stuff. But um, it's crazy to think that we're we're dealing with a PG movie that at the time was kind of just dismissed as like this weird horror oddity, and now has become like kind of this blueprint for all these modern day horror movies that we that we you know sort of can't wait to gush over it's just crazy yeah absolutely and yeah like you said like the the whole like pg movies that came out in like the 70s like before they had the pg-13 rating and it was like well this doesn't feel like a hard r so whatever like yeah like you said give it the fucking same rating that the incredibles got you know like <laughs> it's it's fucking wild and like yeah like it's like his face he he gets thrown out of a window and his bloody face cracks through the windshield while his son screams in horror and you're like cool 
Right. Okay. This is like more tame than a Marvel movie. Like apparently, according to the MMPA. Uh, so it's 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 wild. Yeah, it's wild. And we're talking about it in these very like academic terms right now. But don't, fear not, listener. I also want to make it clear: the movie delivers on scares. It's got a lot on its mind, and it's very layered. But trust me, if what if what you're after is scares, there are plenty there. I would say it definitely leans harder on the more unnerving sort of existential slow buildup of dread. But um, there are plenty of scares and there are some really disturbing uh, scenes, especially the scene where the dad, whose name I forget, played by um, played by Oliver Reed, basically kind of gets possessed for a moment and attacks uh, the kid, Danny, in the pool or Davy. Davy already, we're told, doesn't know how to swim well. There's a pool at this new house that they're renting for the summer. Of course, it's summertime. He's a kid. He's like a wild, rambunctious 12-year-old kid. He wants to go swimming. And they tell him, Dan, you know, Davey, don't go into the... I'm going to call him Danny because of The Shining. But it's like, Davey, <laughs> don't go into the deep end. You know you can't hack it. And he's like, let me show you. You know, every kid wants to show that they can do the thing that everybody thinks they can't do so they can impress the adults. And what happens? He starts roughhousing with his dad. It starts perfectly innocent. But by God, the scene starts to take shape in front of you. And it's disturbing. You're afraid for Davy's life. This movie for me does for swimming pools what Psycho did for showers, where I'm like, <laughs> nothing good happens in the swimming pool in this movie. If you're in the swimming pool and burnt offerings, get out because some bad shit's going to go down. The dad's going to try to drown you. Um, and it's almost like they're caught in this infinite loop, right? He just keeps mm. pushing the kid down, pushing him down. The kid barely comes up for air. He's pushing him down again. It's such a distressing scene. It's like, to me, that is scarier than any... Ooh, the conjuring man jumped out of the wall or right here comes jason with a machete like jesus christ we're watching this guy's dad try to kill him it's it was horrifying and the kid's fear seems real doesn't it 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 truly does that because that scene it go, keeps going and you're like okay cool like they're gonna wrap this up and then it like goes on for another like four minutes and you're like oh my god like it's just like dunk 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 and the mom's like inside like we've got a music box and betty davis is like ah and you're just and it just keeps happening and happening you're like oh my god is he act like you're like there's a point where like is he actually going to die right here to the point where it's like you know i know that stephen king wrote the shining because he was like sometimes when i'm a dad i just want to like hurt my kid and i was like he like you know I, we talked about how the movie this predates the movie this also predates that book so i'm like did he see this because i feel like the dna is so so clearly ingrained in all of that stuff but I just, I just also wanted to ask you, how did you find this movie? Where did, where did you discover this one? This is a film school movie. Uh, film okay. School, wild time. Uh, I can't take credit for this. I never had a friend who was super cool and was like, hey, man, you should check out Burnt Offerings. I was in a class. I want to say it was one of those electives. It was like, it was like the the Ameri you know the the middle class family in cinema. It was something like that, and I remember taking it because I had to. I went to film school and I had to kind of take an elective, and it it was the one that was like not filled up, and I was kind of shitty about it because I wanted to take this other more exciting Spike Lee class and I couldn't get in, mm. and I was like, you know what? But it wound up being the best thing because I it exposed me to so many different kinds of movies, and I'm a horror guy primarily. And, you know, the majority of the movies that you watch in a class like that are not that, you know, you're watching Bicycle Thieves and you're watching, um, you know, these like stark uh, dramas, you know, from the 60s and stuff, you know, stuff that I, I would never watch today. But then Burnt Offerings came up and I was like, it, it just, 
it exposed me to the idea that horror didn't just have to be this obvious thing. That horror could say a lot, but also that it could sort of like, in a very creepy way, disguise itself as another movie, which to me was a really cool idea that it like almost snuck into this weird chamber drama about a family who's sort of slowly breaking down. And then you have these kind of disgusting things behind it underneath the surface, just bubbling, waiting to come up. So that's how I found it. And I remember at the time when we watched it in class, we actually watched this on a film print. Um, so it looked even worse. The distressing was worse. <laughs> and it was like super disturbing because you're watching it at like nine in the morning. And you're like, what in the fuck? You're, by the end of the class, by, by noon, you're questioning your reality. You know, like, that's not okay. But it was so much better. I- I've grown to like it more uh, the more I've seen it over the years because I've also grown to appreciate more of 70s horror and sort of the risks they were able to to take and and just the kind of like no hands-off attitude that the studios had uh, because it makes such interesting movies for the rest of us. And it's always just a movie I think of when people are like, recommend me a movie I've never seen. And I was just thinking about the thesis of your show and you were like, under the radar. I was like, I've never brought Derek something truly under the radar. Brought him underappreciated. I've brought him underrated. I have not brought him something that was buried in a backyard. And I could proudly say Burnt Offerings is that thing. Yeah, well, g- good, good call, man. So I'm glad we're getting your your film school knowledge. You know, uh, so put in put in that degree to good work, uh, I believe. And so, yeah, like yeah, like you say, I think that this this period of like '70s horror was so great, and it's just like you said, like the studios were a lot more hands off. It took me a long time, and I've mentioned this kind of before on the show to like really get into horror. And I feel like I just kind of came up in the wrong age of horror. The like. I was born in 89, so I grew up in the 90s and then like into the early aughts. And I feel like that, and I know there's exceptions, don't at me people, but that feels like when the studios had the biggest stranglehold on horror and they were just like putting out shitty, like, like, like here's the 18th Jason movie and here's the 15th Freddy movie. And, you know, here's what I, I know what you did last summer and stuff to the point where the only really good horror movies were the ones like Scream that were were deconstructing that. And I feel like now with the Blumhouses and the A24s of the world coming on the scene and there's, you know, less, because they're made for this micro budgets, you're getting people like Jordan Peele able to just kind of do whatever they want, that there's that horror freedom is starting to come back. So and and horror in general is starting to come back. So I really do have an appreciation for this era, and I think we're starting to see the echoes of it come back again. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, even like somebody like Ari Aster, who is you know everybody's favorite it director right now. That guy only exists because movies like Burnt Offerings exist. Uh, <laughs> you know, like that guy. Like I haven't seen Bo is Afraid yet. I want to see it, but from what I hear of the viewing experience and the feelings that a viewer gets during Bo is Afraid sound very similar to me watching Burnt Offerings. <laughs> like you're starting to see reality crumble around you a little bit. And you're getting uncomfortable, you know. Existential horror, I still maintain, is the most effective and gut-wrenching type of horror. You can watch people's heads get cut off all the live long day. When you start to truly question the world around you and that little worm wiggles its way into your brain, it's horrifying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then just to rewind just a little bit, there was one other thing that you brought up that I really want to touch on. And that was that fact that you watched this 
in your you said it was a class on like kind of the deconstruction of the middle class or what was it exactly yeah it was like the it was like something super esoteric it was like the middle class in relation to cinema it had like all these like all these caveats and i just remember it being brought up as like this example of early materialism in film mm-hmm. that you know and you could see it all over the movie this is one of the reads i was talking about we could have this really academic read of this movie where it's like people this is kind of what happens when people misplace their love and put it on objects versus other human beings. And it happens all throughout this movie, right? From the minute Karen Black gets to the house, she's in love with the house. We see her priorities shift away from her family to being like, I have to make sure everything in the drawing room is exactly the way it's supposed to be. I carry the tray up to the mysterious old woman who suddenly I have to wait on hand and foot. The dad is sort of not into the house, so we think maybe he's immune. But his is a little bit of a more, this this is going to get super academic, his is a more, a, a read of treating his wife a little more like an object, right? We see him mm-hmm. constantly try to force himself on her sexually. She's not interested because, of course, we know she's sort of falling under the house's spell. And he's not hearing his wife or listening to his wife. For him, it's just a lay, right? So that's mm-hmm. like objectifying, okay? And then you have the kid and the aunt, right? They're sort of just into their own existence in the house, right? The kid is into the pool. He's into the backyard. Like, these are still possessions. Like, the idea that the family wants something just out of their reach, this beautiful house, this amazing experience, something they couldn't afford in real life. Like, they get a deal that's too good to be true to stay at this house so they can afford it at a price point that is way too, like, suspiciously low. I and was definitely like, I might stay there for 900 bucks. <laughs> for 900 bucks for the entire summer, by yeah. the way. That's like months and months and months have passed. Um, but yeah, that's really what, what the takeaway was from the film school version of that, was that it's a movie about obsessing over the material, and then thereby... I think some people have also sort of, in, in recent reads of the movie, have said, that's also the breakdown of the nuclear American family. And to me, I sort of, I don't care about that and don't agree with that so much because like, I think family means different things to many different people. So like, I don't get that view. What I do get though, is the fact that like, when you get a new iPhone, boy, your attention is on that fucking iPhone. Like it's Mm. the most precious metal on planet earth. And if we would handle other human beings with that kind of care, it, it might it might be a nicer place to live, you know what I mean? But I'm just as guilty of that, you know? Like, I get, yeah, yeah. I get a Me new too. device, and that's all of a sudden I have all of these feelings and protections on it. And I'm, like, treating it like it's not a piece of metal. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of the read that I... That's the thing I take away most from this movie is, like, don't misplace your love. It's not about the American nuclear family. Who gives a shit? All families look different. It's about caring about other human beings don't care about the house who gives a fuck about the car like you can kind of start to see these things crumble and be taken away and anyway by the way your objects are trying to kill you so i don't want to get all alex jones on you i'm not trying to say like chemtrails or whatever but like the house in the movie wants to kill them the car in the movie does the dad no favors even the windows and his glass his eyeglasses that he wears like the objects want to hurt us uh so that's that's the message i take from the movie yeah, I, I think that is a very, very smart read. Uh, and the more I started thinking about all of these other haunted house movies that have a lot of parallels with this from the late 70s and early 80s, the more I was thinking like that vein of just kind of that rampant consumerism uh, just kind of really runs through it. You know, obviously you spoke really well about all the stuff in this movie about how they're all obsessed with the house 
in, in it's like an old prestigious house in, in, in Poltergeist, which we've brought up a couple times. It's a new shiny house and they're building all these tracks of houses. And, you know, you mentioned the iPhone and in the seventies it was like, ah, now we're all getting new TVs. There's TVs. That's, that's what she gets sucked into in Poltergeist is a TV. And then, you know, in the shining, they're in this big fancy hotel with all these the glitz and the glamour and the balls uh, the, like the, the, uh, there's all like you know he goes and sees the the celebrations they had in the past when everything was super racist and and then even in something like like i was thinking about a lot watching this movie uh have you ever seen uh the japanese film house that came out a year after this yeah. Aosu. Yes. Aosu, exactly yes <laughs> so and that one it's you know it's the same kind of thing and that's why i think you're smart saying it's not necessarily the, the nuclear family because um you know japanese it's a group of you know young girls who go to this house and i think that film is really like japan which had for hundreds of years been very traditional values all this stuff and speaking of nuclear family the it really ties back into the bombings of hiroshima and nagasaki and how that kind of changed japan and you know the uh world war ii changed japan from being this very traditional um having all those traditional values to really becoming, you know, once they got rid of, well, we made them get rid of their military, just ramping up the consumerism just by Quinn. You and I are both wearing Nintendo shirts. Like, you know, like, like the the viewers can't, the uh, the listeners can't see it, but you've got a Game Boy one on, which is a great shirt, by the way. And I've got a Zelda one on and like Japan really, especially at that time was just like going through, like they're making Sony's and Walkman's and like all this stuff. And then you like that's what every one of Miyazaki's movies has been about, pretty much, is just like how everything is just all about technology and progress and consumerism, and we're all losing our our touch with our fellow people and the world because we're all just like we want to live in this nice shiny house with a nice TV and like all, all and it's like pristine and I love that the mom is like oh it's broken down at first but then it becomes lovely and then she loses her shit on her son because he breaks like that dumb piece of glass. So I think I think that's a really smart reading, and I think that as the world was changing so much, we were becoming a much more technology-based society. All the boomers were really starting to come of age at this time. I think it makes sense that we got this film, and so many like it. Oh yeah, and the '80s are right around the corner. The me, literally, the me decade, the decade yeah. of materialism. I'm a material girl. All this stuff is coming. It's almost like the movie sort of predicted that, or maybe it was in the air, and and the screenwriters sort of took advantage of that. Because you're right, like it's it is the objects, and it's also too not just the objects, but it's like the want of those things, like the mm-hmm. status symbol. Like I just thought again about the swimming pool in the movie, which is still horrifying. That Davy, you could just say, well, Davy's just a kid who's caught up in a horror movie, but like. Davey's also chasing a status symbol, which is ha- being a kid and having your own in-ground swimming pool that he's obsessed mm-hmm. with. Same thing with Betty Davis, right? She just wants to paint. She wants to use all the nice paints and have this nice view. Like, these are all things that you acquire. Like, the wife, oh man, I'm now just thinking about this too, Karen Black, right? She wants Oliver Reed to start his doctorate. I, I, they never tell mm-hmm. you explicitly, but I'm like, I guess he's like a teacher or something. Maybe a professor. Yeah. And like, again, a status symbol of saying, well, I don't want to just be married to you in this state. I want you to be a doctor of this thing. Like, it's just the constant chasing of it's never good enough. You know, I also love that you brought up Miyazaki, right? Miyazaki is so connected to the natural world. And uh, and this movie takes place in nature and it should feel so natural and it feels anything but. Like, the nature starts to attack. Like, there's a really great visual payoff. In the beginning of this movie, when the family is kind of 
auditioning to be the people who get the the chance to stay at the house. Uh, the handyman, who is <laughs> is the only actor in the movie I don't buy. He's like, hey, hey how you doing? He's like doing this like Uncle Cletus routine from The Simpsons. But he brings in this old shitty plant that's dying. And we can almost see it as a metaphor for the house. And it's got one little fresh, like sapling, little leaf, little leaf that's kind of just, just poking out above the soil. And by the end of the movie, after all the suffering the family has endured, after everything this fucking house has taken from them, it's lined beautifully with these lush gardens and all this flowers. Like, like it's it's taken all this essence from them and it's built itself up. Like, do you notice, like, Oliver Reed spends, like, 20 minutes of the second act, like, chopping down trees mm. and foliage with a machete? And then, ironically, it's the trees and foliage that defeat him later and take him down in the woods as, as he's trying to escape with the car. They're literally, like, vines wrapping around his legs, pulling him away, whipping him in the face, you know? It was just this weird kind of revenge of the natural world on the physical, the people who, who prize the material. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know why I didn't see that before, but that little sapling thing just stood out to me all of a sudden. Yeah, like that's what like I I totally forgot about that moment. It's like yeah. one of those things. It's just like, so like because they don't draw a ton of attention. To it. Like they, you see it in the moment, and you're like, "That's cool," and it never like really comes back. Like it comes back like thematically, but they're not like, "Well, look at this plant that was completely dead. It's come back now." Like they, it's a lot. Of, this the movie is it's doing a lot of just it's showing it's telling you like a little bit but it's it's not showing you completely its hand it's just maybe tipping the cards just a little bit just enough so that you get a good idea of what's going on oh yeah and we didn't even touch on the chauffeur which is an incredibly creepy yes. character in the movie and kind of now that i think about it as it's always linked to oliver reed so basically oliver reed has these like hallucinatory memories almost like he has this dream from his own mother's funeral where he was watching what I thought was like the funeral, like the caretaker or like a hearse driver, but it's just a chauffeur at the funeral. And he's like this very unsettling man. They cast him really well. He's very freaky. He always sort of meets your eye. Like it's very uncomfortable. And when Oliver Reed is freaking out, this sort of shows you the house's evil intentions is that Oliver Reed will see the chauffeur in the modern day. Like he'll hear this car and you'll see this old, like whatever it is. I don't know my cars. You'll see like a model T pull up basically and the chauffeur will get out and do his creepy smile. And I'm just now thinking about that too, right? It's like the specter of death. Like we're chasing all these status symbols. We want all these material things before we die. And when we die, we can't take any of this shit with us, which is the other stupid, stupid twist ending to this. Yeah. There's all these like great little, like you said, it never tips tan, but it has these kind of fun things. And that, that's another fun little surface level horror movie thing you can enjoy about the movies. You have a great character like the chauffeur. I almost don't want to spoil what happens in the show for a scene. It's, it's just, it's very creepy and it's used to great effect. Uh, they really sell him with sound design. Like, cause almost you as a viewer start to get trained. Like when you hear the car coming, you're like, Oh fuck, here comes that thing. <laughs> like you don't want to see it. And then the movie goes full tilt. It goes full tilt in the end to one of the most batshit insane <laughs> endings that I, I'm amazed. Like this was the thing that I was like this. I literally paused it. Like I had to watch this on Tubi this time. Because it's not available anywhere. I had to watch this yeah. on Tubi. I when watched it on Tubi, too. Yeah. When you pause on Tubi, right? I just paused, like, to get a drink or something. When I paused, it, like, the, the heads-up display was, like, Burnt Offerings, 1976, PG. Mm -hmm. Like, as this fucking man was falling three <laughs> stories into, like, the car where his son is, and his face is just going straight through that windshield. It was, like, PG. And I was, like, holy shit. This is a PG movie. <laughs> 
the ending just goes full tilt. So there, there is that horror stuff there, but there's also a lot of other reads too. But my God, man, once, once the ending happens, it's an explosion of events. Like from the, from the woods to the car to the reveal of who Karen, or not the reveal of who Karen Black is, but it's almost like the sort of like the acceptance. Like Karen Black just kind mm-hmm. of becomes this thing. I don't think she was yeah. a lady all along. I mean, I don't know. I think, I don't know which read is correct. I don't think it's about right or wrong. To me, it's like, that ghost is always going to be there, whatever that is, the specter, the spirit, the heart of the house. And she always just sort of takes over whoever the matriarch is. And then that lady ultimately always becomes Miss Allardyce. And she's always like sort of waiting there. Like the next lady will come and go. And when the next family comes to stay, there'll be a new Miss Allardyce, you know, that eventually mm-hmm. sort of takes up the mantle. I think I was just waiting for her to become. I was just waiting for the reveal that was her the whole movie. And I think like it was like something I was like, this was probably pretty like a novel twist in the seventies. But I'm like, I have seen the others and all these fucking movies where it's like it's like, oh my god, the, what a crazy thing that happened at the end of this horror movie. So like horror movies have trained me to be like, I'm like I haven't seen her. I know what the fuck you're gonna do, movie. Right. So I was just like waiting for that moment. <laughs> so like maybe I was just like, it's been her the whole time, and it's always been her. Like, but yeah, it's it's like the Jack in the picture. Like it, it doesn't make sense. The more yeah. you think about it, the less sense it makes logically. But once again, so much emotional. Like it makes emotional sense, and it works completely. Even though you're like, how? Why? You get it. Yes, logically does not make sense. Narratively, though, super satisfying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It all goes down so good. And look, this is all there. To us, with what, f- almost 50 years of, of of movie knowledge that this movie doesn't have because it came out in the 70s, yeah. yeah, we could be like, yeah, I saw this coming. I knew she was going to be this. I know that the pictures on the mantelpiece show the family. Like, oh, I saw that in The Shining. This predates The Shining. This mm-hmm. is where that started. I can't think of another movie that sort of has this before. I'm sure there's some weird Italian horror movie from the 50s that we don't know that probably did this and someone saw it and ripped it off and kudos to you. But it all the blueprints are there. It had to start somewhere and this was this was that place. By the way, what the only thing I dislike about the movie, can I say this? Mm-hmm. I don't like the title. And I was yeah. reading, it's a very awkward clunky title and I read what the meaning of it is. And burnt offerings just is to say, like, a sacrifice or a sacrifice to the name of the gods, basically. Yeah, and that's why I thought it was going to be, like, some hereditary shit originally. Yeah, I, I do, too. And it definitely suggests, like, ooh, when I think sacrifice, I think Wicker Man, burnt mm-hmm. offerings. I'm like, is somebody going to get burned in some kind of a weird effigy? No, it's it's an unfortunate title for a great movie. But kind of because it has this weird clunky title, it kind of works with this, like, very weird movie. I don't know. I, I I go back and forth. I don't like the title, but it kind of works. I think it can be two things. Yeah, no, that's that's completely fair. Well, we, we've talked about, you know, like you said, the academic, this is the academic discussion of it, and you know, all the characters and the deeper meanings. But as a horror fan, what are your what are some of the your favorite spooky things about this movie? Oh my god. Well, I won't I'll tell you this. The ending is to be one of the scariest because it is so shocking, especially because the cinematic language of the movie sort of gets you into a rhythm of like these are how this is how this movie is paced. It's more of a slow burn. We recognize that dread is rising. You're anticipating that these things are kind of the tensions tightening and your anticipation's coming. And at the end it goes full tilt. So that when Oliver Reed jumps and he lands through the windshield and it Freaks, freaks the fuck out, Davy. 
It feels shocking. Like, it's shocking to me in a way that very few horror movies do. A lot of horror films, especially in the 80s, uh, Sleepaway Camp, I think, might be the most successful at this, where they attempt the shock ending, and it works because it is so shocking, and it stops the whole movie in its tracks, and it's a great mixture of concept and sound. That's all horror movies are. You mute a horror movie, it loses its, its scare by 60% or something. But, like, here... It's the lack of sound, the crash of him coming down, Davy's reaction, the scream. It all feels real. So it's the shock of that quickness, I think, that gets me. But the other thing is the fucking chauffeur. The yeah. chauffeur I find really frightening, and it comes down to casting. But as a horror fan, it's always great to have a nice recognizable icon that we can sort of hang mm-hmm. uh, you know, different scares on, right? We don't have a Jason here. We don't have a Jack Torrance. So it's nice to have the chauffeur. And it's just kind of this very interesting idea because um, the other people I mentioned are very visual people, right? You, Jason doesn't make any noise. He's a silent killer. We see him with his mask on. It's a whole different story. That's how we know to be afraid of him. With the chauffeur, it's great because he's a guy who needs sound. Just the the idea of the sound design of hearing the car pull up. Like there's a scene, I think it's when Oliver... It's not the first time Oliver sees him, but it's when Oliver sees him the second time when he's in the physical house and he opens the door. Mm-hmm. That's the worst one because we now have been trained when we hear the car coming. We're like, what the fuck's going to happen? <laughs> we know there's only one car on the property. We know no one's driving the car mm-hmm. that's on the property. And when he comes through that door, it's terrifying because all he's got to do is just be there. It, it looks gross. The other thing, too, one more, is the... The heart attack that Betty Davis has is mm. horrifying because it's so real and it's shot so no frills. She makes these horrifying guttural wails and she's sweating and she looks so frail and it's it's real. Like it feels really real. Like I'm happy to say I've never had to see a grandparent go. Like I've never seen, I mean, I've had grandparents that die, but I've never been in the room or something. Mm-hmm. This felt like, I was like, can I, this doesn't feel nice to be watching. Like, I'm watching someone's grandma die on film for my entertainment. But as a horror fan, it was great. I mean, it was really super disturbing. Anytime you have a super elderly person bedridden and making guttural wails, it's a knockout slam dunk. I, I'm already I'm thinking of Zelda from the original Pet Cemetery. If you know that movie, you know that that's the thing that <laughs> everyone's afraid of. Uh, I, I definitely got Zelda flashbacks w- watching Burnt Offerings again last night. Yeah, it's it's those things, I think. But again, throughout the whole movie, you've just got this uncomfortable, unsettling feeling bubbling underneath the surface. And then you get these nice little big horror payoffs. Yeah, and that's that will get me more than a jump scare any time. Was, this was 100% my jam. And I, yeah, that Betty Davis scene. Like, it's so good that, like... I didn't know what this movie was about before when I saw the poster and like, it's like a house and then it's just like her head in that scene. And I was like, Oh, so this is like, she's like a scary witch or something. Like that's what this whole movie. And like, she's like, she's like in the movie, but she's like the fourth most important character of the movie. And that seems like a pretty short scene. And then, yeah, you, you get that, like, that's how it ends with it's like i don't even know if they put like a train sound effect in or i'm just like remembering that in my brain but like when the casket rushes it's so and the, he's that smile that's the thing yeah. that gets me with the chauffeur is that that he's got the sunglasses and the dumb hat and then that fucking crazy ass smile is so good with that big old chin which do you think that's a prosthetic or do you think that's that guy's actual chin? i think that's that guy's real chin okay. i think cast that guy 
perfectly. And what's funny is it's all set dressing. I bet if you put that guy in like an episode of Three's Company, he's the funny guy when he comes into the room because he looks a little silly. You put him in the chauffeur's suit in a movie where everybody's freaking out, that guy all of a sudden becomes the biggest threat in the room. <laughs> yeah, no, like it's 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 very just great physical acting, I think, all around. There was one thing I was noticing, particularly with Oliver Reed, is that he does this thing, and he does it once or at least twice in the movie, where when he's like sees the chauffeur, he does this twitch. I'm like, that's that's some fucking acting right there. If yeah. you're able to elicit like a face and what seems like an involuntary face twitch of terror, I was like, God damn. And that makes you so much more because you have the sound design, you see the creepy dude, and then you just see him just like staring. And he's like, am I imagining this? And you're like, is he imagining this? That's one thing too. You're like, I don't know if that was just him and imagining it or like, like that, or if that was an actual ghost from the thing or like what it had to do with his dead mom. And you're like, it's just more unknown, vague, just cool shit that's in this movie. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, I, I think that that exact effect, what you just said, where you're like, is this happening? Is he really there? Is he not really there? That is the stuff of great horror, Derek. When you're like, when you are questioning reality, when you are questioning the very thing that holds us all together, that's fucking great horror right there. You're going to be thinking about this movie. I'm telling you, it's an under-the-radar Halloween classic that I really want more people to discover because... You know, it, it doesn't look flashy. It looks a little weird. It's got a funky kind of title. But I'm telling you, this is the uncomfortable Halloween movie that is is gonna um is gonna quiet your Halloween party real fast. Yeah, I well, I think that's that's honestly, unless you had any other stray final thoughts, I think that's that's a good place to to leave the the general discussion. Uh so then I am trying to bring back some of the I always like to and end the show with the question. I'm trying to bring that back. And so I just was going to ask, uh, we talked about a lot of great haunted house movies. Uh, actually, last time we were on the podcast, we were on a podcast together. We talked about a haunted house movie that was maybe not the best. I still had a fun time with it. Uh, haunted Mansion, which is on streaming now. Uh, if people want to watch it, I, you don't have to. It's not great, but I liked it. Uh, what is, do you have any favorite haunted house movies? Yeah, I mean, the Poltergeist is definitely up there. For me, I love the classic haunting, as well as House on Haunted Hill. Not the original. I'm going to buck I'm gonna buck the trend here and tell you, I like the Warner Brothers Dark Castle remake, House on Haunted Hill. It's got Tate Diggs. It's got Jeffrey Combs. That's a really great haunted house movie. Jeffrey Rush is sort of playing a Vincent Price-esque character. He really is. Bringing on back. Um that's a really fun one. House is awesome, which we called out, but you gotta you gotta go with the granddaddy. You gotta go with Poltergeist if you're gonna do a haunted house movie. So many iconic moments. Tobe Hooper at the height of his directorial powers, or maybe Steven Spielberg. Um, <laughs> we actually did a whole special on on Poltergeist where we discussed that whole thing. Is it Spielberg or is it Hooper? I won't spoil what we thought or wh- wh- what we came down to. But I would have to say, if you're going just on haunted house alone. You can't do you can't do worse than Poltergeist. You can't do better than Poltergeist. You know, it's, I yeah. And you know what's funny? I actually just was I just watched it for the first time because of this movie. I was like, I feel like I should watch Poltergeist. I it was one of those movies that I just had slipped by me, and I was like, now's the time. Like I, if I'm going to be talking about this movie, I need to have the context for Poltergeist, and I agree. 
fantastic. And I th- I love Craig T. Nelson. He's just he's just America's dad. I feel like you know. So right. before he was Mister Incredible, he was dealing with a very incredible set of circumstances at home. <laughs> very very nice. <laughs> and, and you know what? I was gonna you know I was also gonna mention. Of course, we talked about The Shining a bunch. I think that is just an incredible haunted house movie. And Man, I thought I was going to be such, like, the cool guy. I'm like, I'm going to mention one that nobody ever likes, and that's the 1999 House on a Haunted Hill. But we're on the same page with that. So, yes, yes. This this is why we're podcasting buddies, Derek, because (laughs) you recognize fun horror when you see it. House on Haunted Hill. There you go. That's awesome. Dude, if you want to do an episode on House on Haunted Hill, fucking call me. I'm okay. in. All right, all right. I will. I will save that one for you because that's one that I've always kind of had on the back burner. Oh, and it's been I something I was like, oh, do I need to revisit that? Is that like I was like, is it as good as I remember? But yeah. then as soon as you said it, I was like, okay, cool. I could. I could be. I can be out about my. my open about my love for 1999 House on Haunted Hill. I'm out and proud about House on Haunted Hill. <laughs> and when is a good time to watch House on Haunted Hill? Anytime. Anytime. Yeah. Is- Any time of year, Derek. It could be Christmas Eve. It's still a good time. It's a great time to watch it. Yeah, and we, I might be stepping on a future discussion of it, but God, that's when he's in that that room with like the spinning, like the what the zoetrope or whatever. That every time I see like one of those zoetropes, I still am like, oh, I remember that shit. That'll make you an insane person. That's the genius of House on Haunted Hill. Really, if you take nothing away from this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, go watch House on Haunted Hill. <laughs> <laughs> it might make. Actually, make a great double bill with burnt offerings. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. You know, you get you get that. And, you know, I talked a lot of shit on the '90s horror movies. Obviously, this is like a studio trying to cash in on like a remake of a classic one. But I think they hit the mark with that one for sure. Hundred percent, hundred percent, they did. Well, Matt, thank you so much again for being on and being my my Halloween guest. I, I've had a couple great spooky guests on, but I had to reserve the actual Halloween spot for you. I, I always love having you on. I've, I've loved being on your show. Uh, so it's a blast. Before we wrap up, where, where can people find the Matt and Mark movie show? Yes, uh, dude, I'm honored, by the way, to be your Halloween guest. I will always be your Halloween guest. Uh, Matt and Mark Movie Show, you can find us basically anywhere you get your podcasts. Find us on Instagram, at the Matt and Mark Movie Show. Same thing on TikTok, at the Matt and Mark Movie Show. But we're everywhere, man. iTunes, Spotify. We have a link tree on our Instagram profile where you can interact with our show there. We have a bunch of fun stuff going on uh, on our socials, on Patreon. And uh, and we have a great backlog of episodes. If you've never heard of us before and you want to go check out uh, some of our spoopy episodes, they're all very clearly marked we've been doing this three years running now they're a lot of fun and we'd love to have you and i am honored to be here so happy halloween by the way yeah happy halloween man happy halloween and uh yeah thank you everyone for listening this has been a blast and if you guys want to hear more stuff like we like we're saying i had two more spooky episodes this year been doing a lot of really fun stuff recently like i said a lot of changes have happened recently to the podcast but it's all now under one thing. Just go to underratedmoviepodcast.com. You'll find the links to all of our social media. Uh, we've got a brand new Patreon up and running. Um, so if you're signed up for the old Patreon, um, we, we've, we've rebooted it, got it new. Um, so, you know, uh, we've got some stuff, including this month we had our first ep- ever episode of our new patron-exclusive podcast, Underdogs, where we talk about sports movies. And uh, so, yeah, if you, you want to sign up, we have 
options for $1, $3, and $5. And I gotta say thanks to our new patrons for signing up. Of course, I gotta thank uh, the first ever patron who signed up. Uh, that would be my mom. Thanks, mom. And then uh, we had another patron sign up uh, recently. I got and I just happen to have him on the show. So thank you, Matt, for signing up for our Patreon. It really means a lot to me. Dude, I, I'm into it, man. I'm into it, man. I, I thank you because you're a patron of mine as well. The minute I saw you pop up on the patron list, I was like, Derek, I'm, I'm, I'm joining Derek's Patreon right now. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, and it's, all of you people too. Go join his Patreon. And check his out too. His is, his is great. He's got a lot of awesome stuff. Uh, we've been recently showing some love to physical media. Um, you know, you, you can see me on the, the people can, at home can't see, but you can see I'm sitting right behind this big old wall of DVDs. So I always love the, the physical media love. But yeah, one last time, thank you so much for being on. And until next year, we'll see you all. Have a good, happy Halloween.